This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by ECJ Contacts. Good evening, everyone. So my name is Darren Joseph with HEJ.tax, which is a member of Moore's Role in Asia Pacific. And joining me today, I have my colleagues, Tony and Grant. Tony, do you want to introduce yourself, Grant? Introduce yourselves. Hi, it's Grant Abbott from Abbott Amorley, and I've got my little legal partner here, Tony Anamorlis, international tax guru extraordinaire. who will save you lots and lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So what I what I thought we'll do is just kind of like uh, just briefly introduce ourselves like five minutes max. And thank you to those who sent in your questions in advance. They were safely received. And we propose to go through them one by one. If you have not, if you weren't one of those that emailed us questions in advance, feel free to type in the chat box below and we get to them in the order in which they were received. So I will just really, really quickly share my screen. Oops. Uh, hold on. And present. All right, here we go. So as I mentioned, uh, so our team is a, a member of Moore's Rule in Asia Pacific. We have uh, several offices across Asia, so as far north as Tokyo and Beijing, all the way down to Australia, obviously. I've, I sit in Singapore. I've been based in Singapore since 2013. And we're also, uh, my, my team is also a member of Fusion International, which gives us access to expertise in Europe for those who have exposure with European jurisdictions. Now, because I'm US qualified, I'm legally required to say that anything we say here should be should not be construed as advice. We may be tax consultants, but we're not yet your tax consultant. So nothing should be considered legally binding. We are having a conversation and consider it education or consider it entertainment. But the point is that nothing that we say here should be construed as encouraging you to pay less than your fair share of taxes in any jurisdiction in which you're exposed. So please, Keep that in mind, it's handwriting as well. So without further ado, I will stop sharing. And what I propose to do is just jump into those questions. I see people are, are typing more questions below, so we'll get to them in order. The, fir the first one <laughs> is, you know, well, yeah, how, how do I avoid being double taxed? You know, uh, in short, that once you have a team that knows what they're doing and uh, reasonably experienced with international tax, it usually does not happen. Why? Because both Australia and the US respect the, the principle of foreign tax credits. And the event in the event that we aren't able to use that to, to, to treat your situation in the way in which it needs to be treated, we also have a treaty. There's also an Australia-US tax treaty on which we can rely. And there's also a totalization agreement. And we can get into the details of that later on, but just keeping it at that high level, it's unlikely that you will be subject to double tax. It can happen. 
and we can perhaps touch on the instances where it can happen. One of the more uh, later on, especially when we get into some of the more technical questions asked later on. But typically, I think ordinarily, one space in which it does happen is when it comes to state taxes. So states mm -hmm. within the US. So for example, at the federal level, yes, the IRS would respect tax credits. So it will acknowledge that you paid taxes to Australia, you paid taxes to the ATO. So they will reduce your tax bill accordingly. And since Australia tends to be the higher of the two jurisdictions, it can probably reduce it to zero. But in many instances, the states within the US, so just in case you have exposure at the state level within the US, there are times when the state won't recognize taxes that you paid to the ATO that you paid outside. And that may, under certain circumstances, lead to double tax. But just stepping back, ordinarily, at the federal level, it's unlikely to happen. Uh, Grant, Tony, any comments on that? Yeah, I think the, um, from a, if you're taking the helicopter view, um, everyone, it, it's a, a very, um, you know, obviously both Darren and Tony are probably well aware, is um, the issue of double taxation uh, for an entrepreneur. And I've, I've set up many businesses all around the world. And, um, you know, we operate uh, from a legal perspective, mainly in Australia, but I still have some businesses here that, you know, looking going down the, the track um, for the US and UK and Canada. It's really important that um, I wouldn't even be worrying about double tax. You need to get your business on track. You need to work out what sort of business you've got. Is it a, um, a commodities business? For example, you're selling clothing from Vietnam or you're selling something from Singapore, is it an intellectual capital business? So for example, I'm writing a book and then I'm gonna be selling that online to Amazon. Um, is it a, a business, for example, my other business that Tony and I work in, it's called Lightyear Docs and we provide a, a platform that really um, enables uh, accountants and financial planners uh, to jump into our uh, legal precedent system and easily create um, multi-transaction documents uh, in a heartbeat. And again, that sort of stuff is that um, if I was operating uh, cross-border um, in US, I wouldn't be setting it up uh, in Australia. I'd be better off licensing it over in the US or Singapore or wherever it is. So you really need to focus in on uh, one is your, your business um, what the what your business is doing is it successful? Is it going to expand? Um, for example, I've dealt with a, a business here in Australia in last year. They were doing extremely well, but most of their orders, if you can believe this, is how stupid it was that um, they would get their orders made up in China. They would ship them all to Australia, but then seventy percent of their um, seventy percent of their business was overseas. So they're paying, they weren't paying just double tax, they're paying like triple taxes. And it's just simply, they didn't have a good idea of uh, what their business really did. And I think that that's, that's the crucial one. Um, you can do, if, you, if you're running in intellectual capital, which is all of us that we do, I mean, all the speakers today, we, we really make money from um, what's sitting inside our brain and knowing the tax codes and knowing estate planning, which is something I'm really uh, big into and bloodline planning. Um, that, that can be translated generally anywhere, but 
Um, like, for example, I spent a number of years offshore. Uh, I wasn't a resident of any jurisdiction. Um, so that was, for me, it was, was perfect. Unfortunately, uh, my wife is uh, from America, so she's stuffed. It doesn't matter where you are because it's, um, if you're a citizen, you've got global taxation. Um, so you really need to work out what you want to do, what the business is. And then uh, I think both, both my confreres would say that it's important to look at tax. Uh, but um, I certainly know if, if I was an entrepreneur and I was um, setting up an international um, software business or whatever, I'd, I'd absolutely choose uh, Singapore. In the past, it was always a toss-up between Singapore and Hong Kong. You wouldn't even go... You wouldn't even go within a thousand miles of Hong Kong now. A lot of our staff are over in Manila and Philippines. So it's just the way the, the world works now is cross border. Um, and we've got other staff in, in Vietnam. And, you know, they're the more important issues and getting the structuring right. And then the tax um, will, will come uh, from that. Mm. Well said, well said. And that's a great segue into the second question, I think which is if I'm an Australian citizen and I leave Australia, how do I sever tax residency with Australia? Because you've done it. Yeah, well, it's pretty easy. Um, so the, the, they've changed the laws, but in Australia, essentially, and this is also important too for um, double tax treaties, because if you're, if you're a resident of two places, and this is important for Americans, that. Uh, there are some carve-outs within the double tax treaties that only uh, certain jurisdictions can tax you. For example, um, if I was in Australia and I had a what we call a retirement fund, and in Australia we have private retirement funds, you can invest in anything and do a whole lot of crap and stuff like that. But um, if I went over to any of the jurisdictions, for example, Singapore, um, it would only be, if I became a resident of Singapore, it would only be... Um, Singapore that would be able to tax me on that income stream. But that's a problem because in Australia, it's tax-free. So I might jeopardise myself by becoming a resident um, of Singapore. Uh, to If you're an Australian resident, uh, the core test is usually 183 days. Um, so if you're in Australia for 183 days or more, and I used to watch my days, <laughs> I think one year I might have um, just jumped out a couple of days, uh, but you've got to watch those 183 days, um, declare yourself as a non-resident. So you, um, uh, when you mark your, your form going out of Australia, you declare that you're uh, no longer going to be a resident of Australia, um, but they can always put, so there's two differences. One is for um, uh, immigration. The other one is obviously for tax. Tax is the 183 days, but you need to tick off that you're not going to be a resident. Um, and then you just stay um, overseas and it's important. Now, if you do that, so any, so you've got a choice there, any assets you have in Australia, you can choose to um, make them um, effectively, uh, well, unless it's property, uh, but you can treat, for example, shares or whatever. Uh, you can pay capital gains tax on them at that time, depends on what the market is. If the market's tanked, you might want to do that. And then when you go um, overseas, any increase in those underlying um, shares will not be taxed in Australia. So, because in Australia, it's um, Australian residents are only taxed on are taxed on stuff around the world. But if you're a non-resident, you're only taxed on um, income that is earned in Australia. Um, so, again, the only only exception for me if I become a, 
a um, non-resident is Australian property is always stuck with me. And that's that's just an issue. Uh, so that's the, the way it's going to be. Um, you can be, as I said, you can be a resident of nowhere, uh, which mm. is a pretty good place. I can see, I know Darren does a bit of work over in a few of the more advantageous tax jurisdictions, um, which I've done in the past as well through uh, Vanuatu. Uh, but even even places like Singapore, which has got a very, very generous um, uh, tax credits for startups, a very generous uh, corporate tax system, it's worthwhile if you're going over there. And as I said, if you're doing software or developing is to go there and um, cite yourself there and then uh, use the double tax treaty so you don't get caught in Australia. Mm, right. But, you know, I, I, I've seen, and, and you can perhaps comment on this, they, for those who may be moving around quite a bit, I, I believe it's important to establish a, a permanent place of abode somewhere right. else yep. to move your center of life. So that they, the, because otherwise, potentially the ATU might say, well, the fallback rule is if you can't prove you're a resident somewhere else, you know, utility bill, rental contract, something, then you are subject to tax in Australia. Is that a fair comment? Yeah. And also, if you have a look at the double tax treaties, um, which are really um, based on conflicts of laws, because the, the hard thing about it is uh, when you have a look at each jurisdiction, uh, wants to uh, raise its own money so it can look after the welfare of its, um, re you know, its residents, so to speak. So, um, and that's where, I mean, if you have a look at it, um, that's where you have a look at places like Google, um, you know, <laughs> Uber, you know, they never pay tax anywhere because they set up usually in Ireland. So it's exactly what you're saying, Darren, that um, I think the Irish um, jurisdiction was about 10% tax, but there's a lot of credits and, stuff like that so uh, again you can uh, look i wholly agree with you it's it's not a bad idea um, it's also a good idea as well to um, set up if you are going to set up in a jurisdiction um, that doesn't you know doesn't tax income that's sourced outside that jurisdiction because then you can virtually live there um, and as long as there's nothing being derived there for example you know it, it used to be hong kong for example um, you could live there, but, you know, it's only income that's sourced outside to be taxed. As long as you don't have any income in Hong Kong, you know, you're in a, a good position. And there's numerous jurisdictions around the world like that. Mm. But it great. is, it's important because it does come down to domicile. So where do you habitually, the, the laws are basically, where do you habitually abode? You know, have you got a permanent place of residence somewhere? Do you come back to that place all the time? You know, if I had a look mm. at your... Um, flights or your your passport although they're all digital now where would i say as a reasonable person um that you were domiciled um if you've got for example many people got caught in australia they go and try and live overseas but then they've got their kids houses and um you know wife or spouses left in australia and they're trying to argue they're non-resident it's like well no one's gonna no one's gonna wear that one <laughs> they try that's actually that's actually a great segue into the third question uh, posed by one of the attendees today, which is under which circumstances would I be taxed by the ATO, even though I live outside of Australia? I think you've answered some of it, but yeah. yeah well, then then it comes down to um, your essentially it's going to be income that is sourced in Australia. So 
for example, this is an interesting one. Um, and again, this is where you need to have a um, good legal minds or tax minds behind you. So I, and, and look, it's a pretty open book, but I sold a business. And um, so th this is how you can play around, guys, if you're entrepreneurs. So I sold a business uh, many years ago and I had a two-year non-compete, but I was sensible enough to make sure that that non-compete um, was only for Australia. So then I um, set up exactly the same business um, in a jurisdiction about a month after, um, but it was a jurisdiction outside Australia. So I, I wasn't breaching my non-compete. I was doing exactly the same thing over the internet. And again, that's the benefit of intellectual capital. So in that instance, um, it then comes down and I was still selling into Australia at that time. But it then comes down to where is the income sourced? And that's that's always comes down to where it is. Mm -hmm. So usually there's a whole range and it depends on what jurisdictions some have codified in Australia. It usually comes down to case law. So it's where the contract or the, the service is being made. So I just made sure that um, all the agreements I did, everything I did, uh, ensured that it was done in the jurisdiction that I was outside. But if I did a contract um, or had a, a permanent establishment in Australia and I was operating out of there, then obviously you're going to get caught there. It's easy for intellectual capital, um, software, stuff like that. But if you've got physical goods and stuff like that, it's tough. Like if I'm shipping, so the, the classic one would be if I'm overseas and I'm shipping, let's say, dresses to Australia to sell to Australians, that's fine. So I can have the... Um, uh, the contract outside of Australia and, you know, there's been an issue. Uh, GST, the, you still probably have to add the GST on, but if it's an overseas source, then I'm okay. But if I'm landing it in Australia and then selling it out of a residence in Australia, then obviously it's going to be sourced and taxed in Australia, but it's only going to be that profit. So then that's where Tony comes in because then there's the transfer pricing because I'll probably have a jurisdiction, I might have it up in Singapore, Mm -hmm. I charge marketing fees, I charge other expenses and all that. Um, and then I charge them back to the Australian company, uh, much like a franchise would do, so that I'm trying to keep that in a high tax jurisdiction, uh, virtually mm -hmm. no profit, but I'm bringing the profit back into a, a better tax jurisdiction. So, Tony, you probably know a bit more than that when you come around to transfer pricing. Do you want to give a bit of a, a um, uh, finagling around that one? You're on mute, Tony. Tony, you're on mute. Everybody can hear me now. Yeah, yeah. Now, as you know, with transfer pricing, basically it's, you know, you've got, you've got to, what you've got to do, after you've set up the structures and et cetera and um, what have you, what you need to do is what we do is um, an, uh, an, overarching, an overarching transfer pricing policy, right? Um, and then we've got to do all the compatibles to it. Um, that's that's more like more economical e economics um, in that respect. And then we'll produce what is what's called basically the the transfer pricing policy in in respect to you know the different the different segments. So you could have management fees, you could have marketing fees, you've got and and so forth and so forth basically. So there's a little bit of work that surrounds our transfer pricing, but um, 
as we know, Darren, Grant, and many of you out there, um, you know, transfer pricing, um, the OECD, as you know, has brought out all these various policies, you know, the, you know, with beeps coming on and, and all these other um, reports that are out there at the moment in respect to transfer pricing. So um, it's got to be done right at the end of the day. Um, otherwise, um, otherwise, there's, you know, a lot of ramifications that surround that, basically, and they could deny the deduction and many other things, basically, that go to that in that area, in that respect. So, yeah. So I can talk about transfer pricing all day, but, you know, I mean, it's just got to be done properly, that's all. It costs, a, you know, it costs a bit, but you're better off getting it right rather than wrong at the end of the day. And, and the tax office, as you know, always challenges basically these, these transfer pricing policies. So especially and in particular, you know, the, um, the pricing of, inter, of, um, of um, intellectual property. So mm. that's a big area, you know. So you the hard, the hard thing there. we face is yeah, the hard thing we face is entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. you, um, you know, we start off and you know we've got that fire in our belly. We're working on a shoestring and we do all of that sort of stuff. We can't afford decent tax advice, and then then suddenly our idea takes off, and then we're in a maelstrom of storm, and we're stuck in a jurisdiction. It's very hard to get out. And then you contact one of us and it costs a lot of money. Yeah. And then it's very hard to extricate yourself um, out of that. So what, what I would strongly suggest is for anyone who's in that, if you're already in that phase, and then come and have a chat with one of us, because we can do our magic, but it, it makes it a lot harder for us. But if you're in that startup phase, what I would suggest is that, you, you probably put aside, um, if you're doing it through a capital raise, look, I've just done a capital raise for my company, make sure that you've got a good amount of money set aside for decent legals. So don't go and look, it's very easy to get ripped off and you do not need to go to like a, a huge firm. I mean, you look at um, Darren's uh, CV. I mean, you don't need to go, you don't need to go to a KPMG or a you know, big legal firm because all they're going to do is charge you a lot. And generally, they look after the big big end of town. With the startups, you know, want someone who can bootstrap you, set you up in the basic structures and set you up. And usually it should be like a three or four phase. So first phase, we're going to do this. Let's see if the business works. But bearing in mind that if it takes off, then this is what we're going to do. We're going to shift the licensing or whatever. We're going to put it over here. We're going to do here and here. And so it's more of a monitoring on a day by day because at the end of the day, um, there's, there's two things there is not only tax, but also asset protection. Um, you've got to be really careful as well um, that when you're going into different jurisdictions, and I'm sure Tony and Darren would say that, suddenly you're open to a whole lot of different laws. So, for example, uh, with our system in Australia, we can set up companies within 30 seconds. And you can do the same thing up in Singapore, I think, to a lesser extent. You go over in the US, you can't do that at all. You know, it's just crazy, the system over there. And every state has its own own set of laws. So you just got to be careful. And, and particularly jurisdictions like, like if you were in Hong Kong or wherever, um, you know, those guys can just come in, close you down overnight. And in some instances, Australia can do that. And you've got no right of recourse. So you need to have not only a growth um 
system and, and build it on a structural basis, but you also need to have a, a protection system as well. You know, what happens if, if, you know, S hits the fan, are you going to lose everything or have you managed to keep your crown jewels in a jurisdiction which people can't touch you, particularly tax, because tax, tax, um, like no one gets extradited for tax. Tax is a, a civil matter between you and the tax office, the relevant jurisdiction. So it's not a criminal offence. So you can't you can't get extradited for it. So that's a that's a pretty important issue. So it depends on what you're doing. I think is really important and getting in your mind what your your business is. So for example, I saw with. Um, uh, Nick is is looking at moving overseas full time to work for a US uh, company. You know, millions of Australians have done that. You know, it, people do that. But once you're outside the Australian jurisdiction, you're a okay. And again, you go back to what's going to happen with your investments and all that. But again, you can you can make a pretty clean break on that one. Um, the US guys, it's just it'd be interesting to see what you have to say, Darren, because obviously you've worked a lot. Um, I remember at KPMG when I was working there many years ago, we had a lot of um, US um, expats in Australia and it's bloody tough because even though they'd lived here for so long, unless they give up or renounce their citizenship, you know, they still have to um, uh, file a global tax return, which is also difficult um, if you're, in my instance, if your husband is, is making sort of reasonable money. And in Australia, what we do is we try and shift tax around I'm using trust mechanisms. Um, so I've got to be very, very mindful of what I distribute to my spouse because that might, you know, I, I might save tax here, but then it gets swept up into um, the US as well. We have great, great comments. And uh, speaking about offshore jurisdictions, the next question, question four, if I set up an offshore company in Singapore, uh, would that reduce my taxes? I, I feel as if the comments that you that you guys have made have really touched on that. So it's important to get professional advice upfront. You know, people think, uh, and and it's, under, it's easy to understand why people have all these misconceptions because you go into certain forums online and people throw around terms like offshore as if it was a matter to be treated lightly, but it's not, as you guys have pointed out, it's not just about forming a company in Singapore and then you may wave a magic wand. That company needs to have substance. You need mm -hmm. to have boots on the ground. Otherwise the ATO can take the position, well, you know, hold on. Management and control has been exercised from Australia. This is an Australian company, right? So you have you have real economic substance in in this case, as this person has asked in Singapore. And then to your point and to, to Tony's point, there needs to be a transfer pricing agreement in place, just in case there's you know the movement of funds back and forth to to govern that 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 movement, so that the ATO won't feel uncomfortable that Singapore in this example has been is being used exclusively for the purpose of shifting profits or, or offshore mm -hmm. so it's about uh getting a plan in place as, as you point out uh making sure there's real substance uh in in singapore to the level of whatever it is they're supposed to be doing and having a transfer pricing agreement in place to govern the relationship between the two entities comments yeah look i there's also you know, while, while you're having a chat, because, you know, I was very, very close. Um, you know, I've set up um, a companies in Hong Kong and Singapore. I looked at the two jurisdictions. I chose Hong Kong. This was about a, a decade ago. 
But I, I would say one of the things we have to look at is um, the overall impact of COVID um, is that uh, it's really had an impact um, on every jurisdiction. And so, again, that's gone down to every jurisdiction has treated it quite differently. Uh, in Australia, you know, we've used the closed down mentality. I can see Singapore is now opening up. Um, and you've got to be careful and, and have a look at the balance sheets of the, the country. I mean, if you have a look at um, the US uh, operating a business in there, you know, I could run my business there, but it just doesn't hold the attraction that it once used to because they've run up huge debts. And you know that with those huge debts and that someone has to pay the piper at some time and you don't want to be there if they suddenly... Um, which you can see already, um, I think Biden is looking at putting in quite significant capital gains taxes. Now, I'll beat it's, you know, for people earning more than a million dollars, but I can tell you what, they start at a benchmark and guess what happens over time? It drops and it drops and it drops and it drops. Yeah. So once you put it in there, it's it's very difficult. Um, Singapore is, is um, probably well-placed. It's a small island nation of go-getters. Um, if, if I had a choice, for example, between Singapore and Malaysia, I would always go Singapore. So it, I think you need to look at the jurisdiction and make a five to 10 year goal. If I was, if, if I was looking at um, setting up international businesses, I'd probably spend my time on those messages boards and, and see what people are thinking about, you know, the long-term impact of those jurisdictions. I mean, over in, in uh, the UK, uh, they're, they're doing a pretty gutsy move, which I think it's a good one. It's great for the whole world, really, is, um, and let's hope they go through it because they've had a lot of flack, is they're just going to open up the whole country, um, much the same as Singapore has. Um, and then that, that will be good because um, it, it looks as though this new Delta variant, look, there's always going to be variants, you know, it's every, every variant's going to come out. It looks as though... Um, it's highly contagious, the Delta, but it hasn't got the same deleterious effects on your health, you know, you, you know as, it, as it originally had. So it's going to be a good test case to see um, what happens because if that suddenly opens, then it's going to be great for UK. And UK after Brexit needs to, you know, to shine because it was once, you know, the, the, the um, I wouldn't say empire because, you know, Singapore and Australia were colonies, so we don't really treat... The, the UK that well, um, but um, they were great on that services side. So, you know, as you go down the track, you know, I wouldn't would set up in the UK, but I, I think if you have a look at jurisdictions, you know, who is safe, who looks as though they're going to get out of this in five to 10 years with a clean balance sheet. And I would have to say that Australia is doing very well. Um, and we're lucky we've got commodities for for essentially that will be rebuilding. We've also got a very small population to look after. Um, and Singapore is exactly the same. You know, it's good, stable economy. Um, it's going down the track. Whereas US is, um, it's a very, it, it's one of those ones now that people would say, well, I'm not sure about it. Um, and it's the same thing as you don't, you wouldn't go over and, for example, um, invest in, you know, some, you know, South American countries because you just don't know whether they're going to be around. Well, not around, but you just don't know what the public unrest will be. Um, but again, if you have a look at some of the Asian countries, um, you know, Vietnam is really taking off. 
Um, Thailand is into a lesser extent. Um, you know, they've got good, strong workforces. They're quite smart. Um, people are sort of moving away from China these days because of, you know, you just, you just don't know what you don't know. So I see that, that, um, that, that Southeast Asia, I see that as a, a really booming um, area. And I think that you know, Australia and, and New Zealand to a lesser extent are very lucky to be sort of very closely there. And we have to obviously manage our relationships around there. That's that's a fair point. Now, uh, circling back to, as you say, to Australia, there's a I get the perception that, and I could be wrong, right? That, but my perception is that trust as a, a tax planning tool, not just tax planning, but asset protection as well. It's it's more uh, there's greater awareness and there's perhaps greater use, and, and it's a more popular structure in Australia than it is in the U.S. Uh, could you talk a bit about family trusts and how it's typically used uh, yeah. for asset protection and tax planning? Yeah, so um, there, there's a whole layer of different skills in trusts. So you can get your basic trusts. Um, in Australia, the um, like if you're running a business uh, through a trust, so if, if you're running a business through a trading company, it's okay. You'll have salary and wages come out and you pay tax at your marginal tax rates, which in Australia you do not want to be doing because um, I was having a look at the other day. I was actually shocked myself. It was scary that uh, once you earn, I think, $42,000, you're on something like a 33% or actually 34% tax rate. Whereas if you're running through a company, your tax rate's like 27%. So you'd say, well, why would anyone do that? But then it's hard to get money out of that company. So traditionally, what we do is we blend a lot of it. So we run our business through um, a trust. So you can run a trading trust. And I'll, I'll just show you. I'll, I'll go through exactly what a perfect setup is in Australia so people understand. So you run a, um, a trading business through a um a trading trust, which is, again, it's very easy to set up. Um, and then you've got um, discretion as to where you would like to um, transfer the income each year. So at 30 June, which is one of the problems about trusts, is you have to distribute the income. If you don't distribute the income, it's taxed in the trust at 45% or 47%. So you want to distribute it. So you can distribute it down to children, um, generally over 18, there's penalty taxes, obviously, for children. Um, you can put it to your parents, to your nieces, nephews, everywhere. So what you do is you end up, instead of just one person, you end up with a family group. But then you have what we call um, a company, and they call it a bucket company for obvious reasons, because we distribute down into that company and pay, because it's investment income or trade, if it's trading income, you're looking maybe 27%. And then that's held within there, and then you you utilise it as you see fit. So that's a that's a really good one. Um, in terms of asset protection, um, we've built we built a specialist trust, which we call a, a family protection trust. Um, so that that is a little bit further more advanced, and and because what we're seeing in Australia is um, a lot more attacks on businesses. Uh, but also in estate planning. We've got a very strange system in Australia. So I can draft up a beautiful will for Tony and doing this and that. But at the end of the day, when if Tony passes away, um, any spouse, ex-spouse, child, 
grandchild, even friends who've been financially looked after by Tony, um, brothers, sisters, can all make a claim on his estate. So it doesn't matter what I've said. And the funny thing is uh, we deal with a lot with parents who uh, go to the stage and say, oh, look, I don't want to put this girl in because or this son in because they've, you know, taken so much money out of my life. You know, they keep on ripping me off and all that. But it's funny when you look at the courts, they're the ones the court actually <laughs> puts most of the money into. So because they're the ones who actually, it's called family provisions. So right. what we do is, and it's much the same as they do over in the US, they do use trusts, they're called living trusts instead of wills. So mm -hmm. the idea there is to bundle it all up, uh, put it in there so you don't have death duties, um, mm -hmm. monies are sitting in there, and then you can put terms and conditions around it. So in our family protection trust, the only people who can be looked after out of that are bloodline. Um, yeah. So for example, if kids, um, marry um, and got stepchildren they're all excluded so it can only be bloodline or entities that are associated with bloodline mm -hmm. but we've found that there's great protection there we've even gone so far this will show you how important it is darren we've even gone so far that um in australia a big thing is for everyone to have their house and it's a tax thing because in australia house prices have always been increasing so that most investments, the, the most major investment in Australia is generally the, the property, the family home. And as prices go up, the good thing about it is the tax law says if your principal place residence, there's no capital gains tax or there's no taxes on it. Now that's mm -hmm. good. And the same with investment properties in Australia. If you go into investment property, you're lucky to get maybe a one or 2% yield. But if you're paying a four or 5% interest rate, you'll have excess deductions which can offset against salary and wage income. So it's very popular. We call that negative gearing. You can do the same with shares as well. But the problem is all those assets are now in your own name. Mm -hmm. You can't split the income and you're super exposed because if you get, if you do something wrong and Australia is a very litigious society, um, a trustee in bankruptcy or a creditor will try to attach it. So we've actually got built strategies there that we go through and we look at the equity of those assets. We don't transfer the assets. So anything that's in your own name, we gift it into a family protection trust. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that that aspect, there's no, the legal title still stays in your own name. So there's no transfer duties. There's no um, tax or anything. It gifts over and then it's lent back to you. So you're, you're virtually um, still utilizing all the assets, but you have no equity in them. All the equity has been shifted into those family protection trusts. And that helps because if you do that and generally can last two years, your trustee in bankruptcy can't attack that gift. Likewise, um, if you have a look at it from a um, perspective, the trustee in bankruptcy can't touch it, but also when it comes down to that family provisions claim, that again, it's non-accessible. So you might have a, you know, a, a daughter or a son or whatever who wants to make a claim on the estate. It's like, well, sorry, there's nothing in the estate. Um, it also has some potential benefits around uh, family law, particularly if you go down generations. And we've got a, a one jurisdiction in Australia, in South Australia, uh, which generally these um, normally trusts most everywhere around the world usually only last 80 years because everyone wants them to, you know, get their tax hike at some stage. Uh, but over there you can have um, a perpetual trust so that once you build these things and then as you can imagine you know different families all push 
the monies into these vehicles. And again, they're very safe vehicles, but they're not going to be the trading trust. So the trading trust, what you'd have is that is just the, the very risky entity, all the crown jewels from the trading trust. So if you had software, the software would be in the family protection trust being licensed back to the trading trust. Um, manual processes, so it doesn't matter in your business whether you're doing whatever, you might have a manual for marketing, a, a client base. They're all in the uh, Family Protection Trust being um, uh, effectively leased or licensed back to the trading trust. Because then if the government shuts you down on that trading trust or a creditor does, it doesn't matter because you then open up next day in, a, uh, in this Family Protection Trust through another entity, so to speak. Does, it, does that sort of make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And, and it, when you said that Australia is quite litigious, of course, that is quite similar to the situation in the US. So it makes asset protection definitely a priority for any family, uh, not even if a wealthy family, but anyone uh, at all. It's something that they should avail themselves of, you know. Be I, I, would put, I would put that the structuring, um, because I've seen too many entrepreneurs and all around the world and, and particularly in Australia, they build up this amazing wealth. They've got the best tax structures, um, but it can go in a heartbeat um, because you know you've got the local, you know, the local regulators coming in to try and shut it down or gets embroiled in a in a litigation. And the whole thing about litigation, and Tony will tell you that, is you know from the legal perspective, it's all about dragging it out as long as possible. That's because there's more fees, and also puts a lot of pressure on the party that is the weakest. So if you've got the strongest hand, like for example, um, we call building a moat around the castle. So you've got your castle, your crown jewels, and you want to make it as hard as possible for the lawyers to get to it. So yeah. for example, um, family provision lawyers, are, they call them no win, no fee. They take 30% of whatever they get. And mm -hmm. look, they always make lots of money, um, yeah. but, um, if there's nothing in the estate, they're not going to spend 50 or 100 hours working on a case if, if they've got no chance of success. I mean, they're, they're business people and um, you know, they, they wouldn't even spend 10 minutes. They'd probably get the client in and then go, once they did a bit of discovery, then they'd walk out. Mm, yeah. I, you know, I, I tell uh, clients that all the time, you know, litigation lawsuits are a legitimate tool of business. And mm. if you have not yet been sued, you haven't been in business long enough. But I, I want to move on to, to the next question. Uh, and I think you kind of hinted at this topic uh, in, in your commentary. Uh, let's start talking about superannuations, which, of course, are, are really popular in Australia. So someone is asking in question six, how does the U.S. tax superannuations? Now, just from a U.S. perspective, it is quite contentious because in the treaty, there is no specific provision for super. For supers, like there is in uh, in the US UK treaty, where there is specific commentary mm -hmm. on UK pension plans. So at least we have some guidance. And unfortunately, the IRS continues to be silent on the treatment of superannuation. But generally speaking, contributions are taxable. So mm -hmm. you don't, from a US perspective, you don't get that tax benefit. Uh, generally speaking, growth in the fund is not taxable unless it's a self-managed fund, which we could comment on later. And then distributions would be taxable, but then we would probably want to bifurcate between what is the original investment and what is the growth. Uh, and so that's, yeah, is, so that is, um, so you're looking at a US 
Chris and yeah. Australian Superfund or? Yeah, from a US no. perspective. What, what about the Australia perspective for those who are new yeah. to Supers? Yeah. Yeah, so if we looked at it from Australian looking out, outside, Australia's a great jurisdiction. In fact, um, they're just changing the laws to make it a lot more um, easier for uh, overseas people to actually set up self-managed super funds in Australia. Uh, the trust structures, um, in fact, I've set up, uh, believe it or not, a few self-managed super funds uh, mm -hmm. for Japanese expats here because they're excluded from death duties. So they're not, they're not included. So again, we've got all these little, as you said, the bifurcation, you've got little twists and turns mm -hmm. in Australia. And I explain it when I go over to the US, people can't believe it that uh, over, if you have a look in the, the US, they've got their um, IRA accounts, but mainly their 401ks, mm -hmm. um, which are primarily even invested back in their company or managed funds. Um, so they're getting ripped off every everywhere down the track. Um, and the problem about that is it's just individual, so there's no splitting. In Australia, we've got um, uh, self-managed super funds. Look, I wouldn't put money with an industry or retail fund, you're getting ripped off. Uh, once you get up to a certain level, you set up your own fund, your own family super fund. And that fits in really well with that family protection trust because, again, believe it or not, the self-managed super fund, which I'll call the family super fund, um, has the best asset protection of anything. Um, all across Australia. Um, it's very low taxed. Um, if you're paying more than three or 4% tax within the fund on your investments, you're doing something wrong. Um, you've got an ability to borrow. Um, banks will lend money to buy property inside a self-managed super fund. Um, you're paying virtually little tax on the way through, if, if anything. And then once you turn age 60, um, uh, when you take money out, it's tax-free. Uh, and I, I've argued, you know, I've done talks around the world and I call it the world's best tax haven. Um, there are limits, of course, because now they they worked out. Like I've had some clients that have had um, half a billion dollars um, sitting inside these funds. Now they've put a lot of caps on it, obviously, because people saw what it was. Uh, but, you know, imagine half a billion dollars, um, invest in what you want. Um, there are limits. I mean, you can't. Um, buy a property in there and live it yourself, uh, but you can buy an office and work in it yourself. So there's little twists and turns, but um, it's a great opportunity. If you if you are in Australia and um, you are doing business, um, it really sits alongside that family protection trust, your trading trust uh, and your business and it all works well. The saddest thing I ever see is uh, when I see a client who's got a super successful business age 60, and they've got a lot of money sitting in companies, um, these bucket companies, um, and they've got virtually, they've got a self-managed super fund with a couple hundred thousand dollars in it, when it would be so easy. I'm doing one at the moment, a restructure, uh, where a client who's a thoroughbred, um, uh, who's thoroughbred, um, you know, races thoroughbreds, et cetera, um, he would have saved so much money because you can do that inside a self-managed super fund. Um, and there's so many opportunities there. But then if you're over in the US looking in through here, you've got to be really careful about how it's treated over in the US, whether it's aggregated, as you said, and, and brought to account there, which is, again, one of the reasons I haven't necessarily brought my wife into my um, self-managed super fund, because I don't want the US jurisdiction um, sniffing around at what I've got. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, um, they, they can't do much. I mean, as I said, they can't extradite me. But mm -hmm. if you get 
it's hard enough to get in the border, but if I want to go to the US and make a trip and they've flagged me, you're pretty well stuffed um, at that time. You know, you're caught in that jurisdiction and there's nothing worse that they bundle you up and, you know, interrogate you. And, you know, once you're in there, you, you're in there and you're stuck. Mm, yeah. So uh, sticking with the theme of, of Australian superannuation, uh, we have two questions back to back. Someone is asking, uh, under what circumstances would a superannuation be considered a trust and uh, a PFIC? So in terms of uh, our position, I know that there are some uh, US tax teams that consider all superannuations as foreign grantor trusts. We, we, we look at the treaty, we look at, uh, I think it's section 18.2, and our position is that it's not a foreign grantor trust, but it can become a foreign grantor trust if uh, the grantor or you know, the person that's making the contributions uh, contributes more than 50% to the trust then mm. it may be considered a foreign grant to trust. And in terms of it being a PFIC, for those who are unfamiliar with uh, what the PFIC is about, PFIC is a passive foreign investment company. So that is a designation that arose in US tax rules back in the 18s, 1980s, uh, when um, President Reagan was in office, domestic US domestic financial institutions were complaining that Americans were, whether they reside in the US or abroad, they were investing in essentially foreign mutual funds. So they, create, they came up with this designation, which it more or less penalizes you in a way for investing in what is essentially deemed to be a foreign mutual fund. Mm -hmm. So basically when you have a self-managed super, the, the tax code tends to interpret that as uh, essentially a PFIC and it will be taxed accordingly. I, I wouldn't get into the, the mechanics of it, but it mm -hmm. tends not to be to the advantage of the, of the US taxpayer. So we would- yeah, generally, generally you wouldn't anyway, because uh, to be brutally honest, uh, going back to what you said before, mm -hmm. um, a central management control, there's ways that look, we find ways around everything obviously, but yeah, if you're a yeah. US resident, you're not going to put a contribution into Australian super um, because the danger about that is if your central management controllers seem to be overseas and it turns mm -hmm. the fund into a non or foreign super fund, which then is taxed. So it moves from a, a generous tax rate to a 45% tax rate. So you get pinged in the US, you get pinged here. So what we tell people is um, if you've got a, a self-managed superannuation fund and you move overseas, depending on the jurisdiction. And it's the same thing, as I said before, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people will say, okay, I've got a self-managed super fund or I've got Australian super and I want to move to Italy. I want to move to UK. I want to move to Singapore. And the, the thing about it is once you're over 60, you can take an income stream from Australia tax-free. But mm -hmm. if the, 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 there is Article 11 of most double tax treaties provide that wherever you are a resident, um, can um, tax that pension income. Now, the problem about that is you're coming from a tax-free jurisdiction and many jurisdictions will actually treat overseas pension income as assessable income. So you're doing the, the, the worst of everything by going and living over in Italy or whatever. So you've just got to be really careful. And again, I think through, you know, the Moore's network is um, the beauty about that is we don't know everything. 
um, around Australia, absolutely. Asset protection, estate planning. You know, we've got, we've got the boots on the ground and, you know, we read the cases and we see and we represent people. Um, and the same as you do up in Singapore. But both of us would say, well, if a client's coming to, wants to go over and um, uh, live in Holland, neither of us have got that skill. Uh, but the good thing about the, the network, and if it's Vietnam, whatever, we've got um, access to, you know, the best minds in the business who can, again, we can start to finagle and, and work out what the best structure is. And, and it, unfortunately, we live in a global world. There's no global taxes, thank goodness. Uh, but we do have to work through different taxes. And sometimes, mostly, if you look at it, anyone from uh, who's a US citizen, um, it's virtually a global tax anyway. Mm, yeah. So uh, staying with that theme for a while, uh, actually leaving Australia. So if someone was tax resident, there is a superannuation fund, and they decide, hey, I want to leave Australia, can they cash in the super? Nah, they, they used to be able to. I, I had a friend who's, and she was my brother's ex-wife, and she called me just recently. She got divorced. She was over in Sweden and had $200,000 sitting in a, not a self-managed, but in, in a retail fund, like a, a mutual fund over here. So they're very big um, here. Mm -hmm. um, and I did my darndest out of everything, and she can't touch it until she's age 60. So... Once it's in Australia, um, it's locked and loaded until um, you're 60. Or the only other way out is to become, um, uh, if you become temporary incapacitated, you can take it out as like a salary continuance mm -hmm. or totally permanently disabled, which you don't want to do. Or alternatively, you die, you can take it out. So otherwise, you're just going to have to wait. So unfortunately, if it's in Australia, it's, it's basically stuck in there. Okay, understood. And we were talking about like family trusts and trust structures before. So as an Australian qualified trust, what about if someone who's Australian tax resident were to use a foreign qualified, let's say a Singapore qualified trust or so US trust or something from another jurisdiction, can that be used uh, for tax planning? Within Not really. Yeah, no, we've got, Tony, you can, you can probably talk about that on control foreign trusts and control foreign companies. Hmm. Yeah, so if you've got the rules are around that, basically, if you've got a 1% or, or more interest in a foreign trust, basically, you're captured mm -hmm. um, in terms of income. Mm -hmm. um, so um, with um, foreign trusts, again, if, if you're a beneficiary, again, mm -hmm. and we spoke about this last, mm -hmm. if you're a foreign beneficiary in, a, in an Australian trust, of course, and you make a distribution out outbound to a foreign beneficiary overseas, whether it be US, Singapore, wherever, mm -hmm. then a recent case has just come out now, which I'll send to you, okay. is it's in the federal court, actually. It was, it was issued in the federal court. It's a federal court decision. Um, mm -hmm. um, if you distribute out to a foreign beneficiary, the trustee will get taxed now. Yeah. Wow. Did you, did you hear about that one, Grant? No, I haven't seen that one. You have to send I'll, me. I'll, I'll, I've got to send that through to you. It's very, like, you know, mind-blowing, you know. So, um, but anyway, I'll send that case out to you. It's pretty interesting, actually. So, yeah, you got to be careful, too, because we've got control foreign trusts and control foreign corporation legislation. Corporation. If, you get, if you get caught in there, if you're seen as being the, the dominant party um, yeah. in there, um, that effectively the, they can bring to account 
mm-hmm. um, the growth in the underlying shares on an accruals basis and bring that in as income, which you, you just don't want to do. Yeah, so wow. you've just got to be very careful. But it doesn't mean that your family, your trust here, can't mm-hmm. invest um, in, a, in an offshore company. Probably mm-hmm. not a trust, probably a company would be yeah. a better way. Okay. All right. Um, moving on to question 11. Uh, I'm going to read it. My question involves owning real estate in Australia as an American. If co-owning a property with my Australian spouse, is it possible to avoid the U.S. capital gains tax in the future by transferring uh, title completely from myself to my Australian spouse? Um, um, from a yeah. U.S. From a yeah, US I think yeah, I'm not sure about that one because I think um, I'll look again. I'd, I'd have to admit I'm not an expert on Australian, oh, sorry, U.S. taxes. But I'm finding it bloody quickly uh, through having a wife there. Um, so I, I'm meandering and working my way through there. So um, if I find well, out I a solution, I could comment on that. So because I'm doing exactly that myself. <laughs> from, from the US perspective, yes, there's absolutely nothing restricting you from transferring you as the US taxpayer from transferring it to a foreign spouse. The only thing is that it'll be reportable on a, a gift tax return. Yeah. So once, so it's reportable, but not necessarily taxable because as a U.S. person, you have uh, a lifetime gift and a state tax um, uh, exclusion amount that you can, that you can use. So do you have gift, sorry to butt in, do you have gift taxes up in Singapore? In Singapore, no, gift and estate taxes, no. Yeah, we we don't yeah we don't have them either. So I mean that's why, like I, I was talking before, that you know we can gift everywhere, and um, it's the best thing since sliced bread because you can really restructure fairly well. And, and it's funny because the courts are looking at a lot of this stuff now because a lot of the smarter people are using a lot of gifts and loan backs and stuff like that. And the poor old judges, their their brains are just frying because. They just don't know what to do because it's uh, it's quite advanced. At some point in time, though, again, going back to what we were saying is mm-hmm. um, the jurisdictions you're in, you've got to be mindful of those mm-hmm. estate taxes that might be coming in the future uh, mm-hmm. and also gift taxes that might be coming. So I, I would always encourage everyone to, to move as quickly as possible, get your structures right, because mm-hmm. it, I've seen so many people who've come to us and said, Oh, well, we, we actually wanted to do something a year ago because they've changed the laws. <laughs> you say, well, it's too late now because, you know, the laws have already changed. Mm-hmm. So from a, uh, just continuing from a U.S. perspective, uh, thanks to President Trump's uh, Task on and Jobs Act at the end of 2017, the lifetime exclusion for gifts and estate moved up to 11 million, uh, so which was quite generous. So, uh, but unless it's extended, we expect under President Biden, it'll go back down to 5 million or maybe even a bit less. So, you know, it's being discussed, but, you know, nothing is formalized as yet. We expect that to be done by the end of this year, top of next year. But the the bottom line is that assuming that the value of the property is going to be less than 11 million, you can transfer it and you just file a gift tax return. And if when your Australian partner does decide to sell it, there would be no U.S. capital gains taxes. It'll just strictly be uh, the Australian tax situation to, to consider, which, as you've already commented on, could be actually tax-free if it's their primary residence. 
Yeah, so yeah, probably residents. The same thing is if you've um, got a spouse, you can uh, gift it over to the spouse. There's no capital gains tax and also there's no um, uh, transfer or gift duties in Australia. So um, that'd be interesting. I'd, I'm just going through that process myself. So I'll be digging around in the US code. So um, uh, I'll probably need your help there, Darren. Sure. Okay, moving on to a completely different topic now. We're going to talk about yoga. So question 12, uh, someone has written us, I am a sole proprietor with a yoga business in Australia, and I'm planning on moving from an ABN to an ACN for the liability protection. Would this change how I file taxes? Uh, do, do you want to comment on the ABN to ACN, please? Yeah, so, well, the ABN is your Australian business number, so mm. you're obviously changing entities, so you should really go back. Um, if they, if they, if he, they're in yoga, I would probably not go down the company. I think it's it's just a bit too cumbersome. I would go back to what we're talking about before. Um, I, I'd set up just a trust, mm -hmm. uh, and again, that would have its own separate um, ABN. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, um, with yoga as well, in, anything to do with that health industry, there's a good chance of litigation. In fact, there's a very strong chance of litigation. So to have it in your own name is extremely dangerous. I mean, in yoga, someone just extends themselves in the wrong pose, falls on their neck, breaks their neck. That's it. <laughs> you're you're dead for the. You know, you'll end up going bankrupt. Um, so the family trust is is probably the the best structure to use as a base. Right, but from a tax perspective, would it still be considered? It's it's an unincorporated entity. Yeah, so it's an unincorporated mm -hmm. entity. Mm -hmm. um, if you want, you can always have a corporate trustee. But if you're a yoga instructor only just starting, um, I'd probably just uh, wait a little while. Um, and um, then what you'll do there is um, if you've got yourself, but you can distribute the income to um, other members of your family. So um, because we use a progressive tax system, uh, progressive rates, uh, by spreading it out, it means you've got an overall lower tax. Um, so, for example, uh, up to uh, 42000 I think, our, our tax rates, I think around about $40,000 of tax rate is 30% or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. um, or from forty-two to one hundred and twenty, it's 32%. Um, so if you've got a whole lot of people there, you can actually spread it around quite a lot and use everyone's tax-free threshold of eighteen or $19,000. But it has that, that, that would be the best thing because it would have, so if, if I was having a chat with a yoga instructor, mm -hmm. I'd probably deconstruct their business. Um, mm -hmm. Yoga's fantastic, but it's very, as they say, boots on the ground, mortar and bricks. Um, mm -hmm. If you've got a unique way of doing yoga or whatever, um, I'd probably do a couple of things. I, I would um, investigate the ability to, uh, teach whatever style you're doing because yoga has its own style. So I'd probably put it online, um, even do a Substack, um, start writing some some stuff stuff on Substack, and then putting it all into that family trust to try to get leverage. Because at the end of the day, with our business, it's hard for us as lawyers and accountants to, you know, we we get charged on you know the hours we work. I'm the same with yoga, but if you can leverage it by turning it, as I said right from the start, into intellectual property, you're a lot better off. And that's definitely the, the place to have a, um, one of those family trusts or discretionary trusts, we call them. Right. And from a U.S. perspective, uh, and to his or her comments, then yes, you'd still be on Schedule C. 
and the income would be covered by the foreign income exclusion to form 2555. The self-employment tax should be alleviated by the US-Australia totalization agreement. So it is quite a, an official uh, structure, uh, efficient structure. And I'm reading on to what he's saying. Uh, if I teach yoga online to people in the US, uh, that, that is to your point of leveraging it and yep. making it more efficient as a business from a tax perspective, uh, that would have no, because it's being done from within Australia, even though it's online. Correct. So, Correct. so the, the entire process more or less remains the same. Uh, then the last that's why, for example, play, that's why Amazon and those guys don't pay any tax because they're on a very favorable tax jurisdiction. They say all, all our IP and all that is here. So, you know, we don't, we don't have to pay any tax. So, again, that's advantageous. And, and look, um, you, you never know how it's going to work, but it's worthwhile having a go because the cost of setting up something like that, whether it's a YouTube channel, you know, there's so many different... Um, these days, you've got plug and play. So, you know, you can do webinars, you can do everything. It's all done for you. You can charge for it. You know, you charge subscription. I'm always a big one on, on subscription. You know, people might charge, you know, 50 or $20 to do um, in-home. And really, if you have a look at it, um, after COVID and, you know, COVID's not going to be the last time we have lockdown, um, mm -hmm. it's perfect. People need to do something at home. Mm -hmm. And it's been a big switch away uh, from the yoga studios, uh, mm -hmm. from the uh, gyms, um, you know, from communal um, uh, exercising to either outdoor exercising or more importantly, just doing it at home. It's the same with for home offices. I mean, hardly anyone, I don't know what it's like up in Singapore, but there's certainly a great reticence in Australia for anyone to return to work. And we've got some very aggressive occupational health and safety laws, plus we've got very aggressive uh, fair work laws that you can't force a, uh, an employee uh, mm -hmm. to come in and work in the office anymore. So it's, uh, it's an interesting play. So with that yoga, as I said, it's a good one. I mean, you can even, um, again, just um, spitballing is, is going and finding a few um, large corporates um, and um, letting them have, uh, particularly for uh, home office workers, mm -hmm. um, getting a subscription to your yoga um, and then they can shoot it in, you know, their, their um, employees who are working at home can use mm -hmm. yoga. So it actually benefits everything. They'll get a tax deduction for it. It's benefiting the mental health of their, their clients. And you're sitting over here in Australia, wherever it is, and you can actually shoot that out around the world. So uh, that's the way I'd, I'd be targeting it. Right. Now, uh, as of this year, because we have some uh, clients that are YouTubers or influencers, online influencers, and, and they do pretty well for themselves. Now, if this uh, he or she does put it online and they use, for example, a platform like YouTube, what YouTube will do would be to bifurcate their audience and, yeah. and report to them and say that uh, when they give their report, that this percentage of the audience is from the US and therefore should be treated in a certain way. So to answer the question that, that was posed, it would the the income that arises from the U.S. audience would be qualified for the qualified business deduction, which is uh, a tax advantages uh, deduction from from yeah. a U.S. perspective. But the audience outside of the U.S., like for example Australia, unfortunately. No. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say look, 
just having run um, a lot of businesses, um, I wouldn't trust YouTube as far as I could throw them. You, you end up being, if you're relying on uh, monetization for them, it's yeah. nice. It's the same as I, I'd be using YouTube, TikTok, um, probably Instagram as well. Um, and then they should be leading into a, um, your own site. So use into a landing page. Look at Click Funnel. Look, there's heaps of Click Funnels. Mm-hmm. No, there, there's so many different places, and and so you have a private wall. I don't now. I'm not not saying I've been here, but yeah. the, the the industry that's doing really well is a lot of people will be on TikTok or whatever, and then they go onto an OnlyFans page. So mm-hmm. again, you've got a that stuff is free. Mm-hmm. It's very cheap, but it's well. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm doing. Like you can see at the moment. The cryptocurrency guys, you know, I'm making millions of dollars out of that. And let me show you how to make millions of dollars. And of course, they show you how to make millions of dollars by you have to pay a subscription or pay for a training course to listen to them. And it's not as if this is new. This has been around for options. It's been around for shares. It's around property. It's just a. It's just a typical thing. Is you've got the knowledge. Yeah. People want to pay for it. You you give it away. Just you give it a bit away to tease them up. And then there'll be certain people who'll go behind the, behind the paywall to get a subscription. And then that's the the case is wherever you're delivering that service mm-hmm. is um, that's where the contract is. That's generally the case. And that's that's a good thing about the internet is that you can be in a good jurisdiction um, where the money comes back in there and it can't be taxed over there. Whereas you start to use things like YouTube, um, TikTok, which is look with tiktok we don't know what's going to happen obviously it's a chinese company but you just got to treat them with a grain of salt and have a multitude of stuff whether it's um look if you're doing mental health the yoga one um that'd be fantastic on linkedin you know you're going to get some really good resources out there do some free sessions on linkedin um Mm -hmm. but again it's got to go there's got to be some monetization but don't the monetization has to come from you you have to control it do not let other people control the monetization, if that makes sense. I, I completely 100% agree with that. So for example, this video, it's being live streamed on YouTube. Now, because of the YouTube algorithm, because we've mentioned the C word about a certain pandemic, it would be the, the algorithm will punish the video. So pe- even people that have subscribed, it will be what, what they call shadow banned. So they, yeah. it's not going to be taken down, but it'll be very difficult to find. So, I mean, we don't depend on this for any revenue generation, but if we were to, then we would be at the mercy of somebody else. So to your point. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, I've seen the, uh, a good friend of mine, um, again, the, the power of the internet business, um, he's got a company called Nordic Rooms in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, lovely stuff. It's got fantastic. It brings stuff in from um, Sweden, Norway, sells in Australia, um, and uh, does uh, obviously a lot of online. Mm-hmm. Works from home. Lovely guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he finds out, obviously, with the online, he's making a greater profit than he used to do it through retail, where obviously his margins are a lot lower. Yeah. Uh, so the problem about, and, and that's how you can get free shipping because you're cutting the retailer out. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of his business was coming through Apple, but then he was doing Facebook ads targeting people and then they changed the algo uh, mm-hmm. and he's down now $180,000 um, 
uh, uh, per annum just simply because they chose to algo. So now he's having to switch his marketing around to go mm -hmm. to email marketing. And that's why many of us are starting to see a lot more emails come through because yep. each of the Google, the Facebook and the Apple, they're now trying to centralize and silo their own businesses rather than allow them to um, feed off each other, which was people were doing really well for, but but not anymore. So you can't trust these big companies necessarily. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just, just moving on to the last few questions we have. Mm. Uh, number 13, if I... <laughs> Uh, if I bring my if I bring my taxes, I guess my tax situation to your firm, how much money can you save me? I, you know, I, I tend to smile, of course, and there's no one can make you a promise. And I think those who would make any sort of guarantee are probably perhaps less than sincere. Mm. So uh, I would take that with a pinch of salt. So we need to, of course, look at your situation and make a determination. Chances are, if you're like a regular salaried employee, there's typically not that much wiggle room. Whereas if you were self-employed or you ran your own business, then there perhaps may be a lot more opportunity for, for planning. So that, that that's my response to something like that. And guys, any comments on that? Yeah, look, it all depends on what they're doing. Quite often that's, uh... You, you really need, as you said, uh, facts and circumstances so that even if it was like half a dozen bullet points saying blah, 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 you're going to, we, we can zone in on it. We've done this. We do this day in, day out. So we're going to work out uh, what we do. But um, uh, quite often, uh, mm. if you are not making any money, that's the easiest way of saving tax. Because <laughs> you're in a loss, do you know what I mean? You don't pay tax if you don't make money. So it depends on on where you're going, what you're doing, and and honestly, um, I'd agree with you. Salary and wage earners, you're stuffed. Um, in Australia, you have to pay tax on the way through. Um, even just having a trust or or a company, um, you can defer tax, which is you know, I was told by my tax lawyers, deferral is is just as good as a permanent tax hike. So it really depends on your, your circumstances. And I know that's a wishy-washy answer, but if we've been given blah, 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 then absolutely we'd be happy to uh, ride into it and uh, say, well, this is what I would do. Mm, okay. Um, question 14. What if we can't afford a professional advisor? Well, what should we do? Uh, well, on, on our website, hg.tax, we have over 1,000 articles on, on US tax issues as well as uh, I have three books that are on Amazon. And if you're an Amazon Prime member or anything like that, I think for the most part, books are nearly or next to free for, for Kindle. So you can probably read it for free. So there is professional uh, guidance available online on the websites of people who are properly qualified to give it, as well as their professional liability insurance. I would tend to shy away from the Facebook groups where people who perhaps are well-intentioned and well-meaning, they have a good heart, but they're not qualified and they're a bit generous with their perspectives. And that tends to get people in trouble. And to be honest, we probably make more money getting people, extricating people from a messy situation right. Right. than we do helping them get it right the first time around, Grant. Yeah, look, I think you're probably looking at it the wrong way is um, 
It's like an investment. Um, yeah. More importantly, you, just this one hour session. I mean, how many business ideas have you come up with? I mean, the way we're telling you how to make money and don't, don't look at it as, um, I mean, you, if you're looking at it from a narrow perspective of paying tax, then you're missing out the point. As we said, salary and wage earners, you're pretty well, there's not much you can do. Mm. But if you're an entrepreneur, you would, I, I would be going to the best, I've always done that, always go to the best advisor because mm. not only will they make sure you do the right thing, but they've also looked after the best of the best in the yeah. industry. And they're going to give you all the, they're all going to give you business ideas for nothing. Seriously, look at the business ideas we're already giving you. So it's not, don't look at it from a tax perspective. Yeah. Look at it as a business growth investment. Mm -hmm. All right. Investment pools, they'll definitely be a positive return. Uh, question 15. Yeah. Uh, going, going on crypto, someone's asking about crypto. It took them a while. Expected crypto earlier on. Is there a difference between how Australia and how the U.S. treat crypto? Uh, from a U.S. point of view, it's not considered a currency. It's more or less considered property. We have Revenue Ruling 29-24 for that. Mm. But basically, it's taxable when you are trading crypto to fiat, for example, to the dollar, or one crypto to another crypto. Uh, when you spend crypto to purchase goods or services, or when you earn crypto as income it's taxable so it's it's more or less it's it's property right mm. so it, it'll be treated like that uh so either you're going to be taxed at the ordinary tax rates if that's how you're being paid or if there's a capital gain you're going to be playing capital gains tax and for those who are traded because we do have some clients that uh crypto traders this is what they do full-time and they do thousands of trades per day mm. then that, that's trading income so that, that, that's how the U.S. looks at it. How does Australia look at it? Yeah, same thing. It's a capital gains tax, or if you're in the business, it would be the court. But the, the very nature of crypto is it's secretive. So you know I mean? you, it's, it's harder because um, at the end of the day, no one knows what you're doing or where it is because it's not on, it's sitting on any asset register. So it's not sitting in um, the, like, for example, uh, the Australian Taxation Office has feeds into all bank accounts, has feeds to everything. So if it's come from a bank account, then it can be traced and obviously then capital gains tax and all that. But, you know, if you had a windfall from, you know, Great Aunt Mary over in the UK and you set it up um, into an exchange overseas, um, no one's even going to know about it. And that's, that's what scares... And you can see that that's what scares all the central banks. And that's why they're all building their own crypto because crypto by itself is um, quite ephemeral and, and no one can touch it and you can, and you can see. But then again, the ne'er-do-wells have it as well because if it's sitting in an exchange, you know, what exchange are you actually going to use? If it's an exchange in Australia, then obviously the Australian authorities will get it. But if it's exchange overseas, there's a good chance that someone's just going to walk away with all your Bitcoin mm. and you've got no right of redress. So mm. it's uh, it's just one of those things to me. It's, uh, it's a good idea, but it's very wild west town. So mm. if you're in crypto, you can make a lot of profits. But um, again, if there's nothing there, yeah, it's very hard at the, the long run. Mm. 
And the, the IRS has been pretty aggressive. They've been subject to funding issues and, and budget constraints. But one area in which they've been allowed funding by Congress has been for crypto. So they've hired and they spend a lot of hiring with generous salaries, attracting talent to, to deal with, with, with crypto tax liabilities. And uh, together with the U.S. Department of Justice, they have gone after exchanges outside of the U.S. So once you exchange is in the U.S., it's firmly under government control. Like, for example, Coinbase, right? Mm. Now, if you're outside of the U.S., we've had the recent example of BitMEX in Singapore, Hong Kong, where uh, some warrants have been issued for the arrest of um, some of the, the three shareholders. Why? Even though they're outside of the U.S., because according to whatever investigation the U.S. has done, they're allowing U.S. exposed people to trade on their platforms. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. has not been shy, and I don't think they're being shy right now, going after exchanges that are allowing U.S. people in without... Remember, uh, yeah, remember we're, we're, we're here where we are now, mm -hmm. but the law... I, I remember once getting a fortune cookie. Um, I opened it up, and... Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's good. The, the law sometimes sleeps, but never dies. So what's happening now, because you're looking at tax evasion, yeah. this could happen 10 or 20 years down the track. They can come and knock on your door and say, well, hold on, you didn't do this. And then that's when you need some really good asset protection structures. Absolutely. Sorry, I'm getting, we got a message below from Nick. He has to go. Uh, this, for those who need to leave, this uh, will be recorded and will be available at tax as well as on YouTube, uh, uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, Amazon, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is going to be hosted there so you can pick it up there. So Nick asked some questions before he had to leave. He says, I'm US Australian dual citizen. So he's a dual with investment accounts in both countries, should I consolidate them? Uh, from a US perspective, it really depends, again, as, as Grant has said, facts and circumstances, right? Mm. So from a US perspective, some if there's a danger that some of the investments outside of the US may be treated as PFIX, passive foreign investment company, as mentioned earlier, it will be tax disadvantaged from a US mm. perspective. It may need to be restructured, but, uh, other, other than that, strictly from a, a tax perspective, I'm not going to comment on uh, financial planning because that's a whole different discussion. Mm -hmm. But from uh, a tax perspective, look out for PFIX. And if there are PFIX, you may want to deal with them. Uh, Grant, Tony, any comments? Yeah, probably the same. I think with the investment mm -hmm. side, um, if you're a dual resident, you've got to go back to the double tax treaty and find yeah. out where you actually are resident. Because it's a tiebreaker rule, yeah. Yeah, I think Nick was moving over to US full-time. He's got a question there, which mm. I answered. Mm. Mm. Um, but if he's moving over there, when he becomes a resident of the US, he's got a choice of, uh, from an Australian perspective, leaving his investments, keeping his investments, and he'll still have to pay tax uh, in mm. Australia um, on those. Uh, but then you've got to go to the double tax treaty. Um, or alternatively, he'll just um, uh, basically pay capital gains tax on the on the way out um, and then just uh, doesn't have to worry about it so much. Uh, dividends are different. Um, if he receives dividends from uh, shares, uh, obviously there's a withholding tax, uh, yeah. but if there we've got what we call franking credits, uh, we get the underlying company tax paid back. Uh, there won't be, if it's fully frank dividend, you won't be paying any tax in Australia on it. If it's interest, then you pay... Um, uh, withholding tax of 10% with a double tax treaty. 
Okay, wonderful. So at least on my list, I'm so I'm going to just flip over to Facebook to see if anyone has been asking any questions there. Uh, nope, we're good. So that's it. Thank you. So uh, one thing I wanted to comment on when, when we spoke about uh, tax and it's just subject to civil penalties, unfortunately, from the U.S. perspective, there are criminal penalties that will apply and be subject to criminal litigation. So the recent case that's been in the media a lot has been a guy called John McAfee, the yeah. antivirus software guy. He was uh, fighting extradition from Spain on charges of tax evasion when he uh, unfortunately met with his uh, untimely demise. So the U.S. is one branch of the federal, the IRS is a branch of the federal government that is unafraid to cross borders and to find you wherever you are if they want to make an example of you. Or we've had cases where it's just been what we call a sealed indictment and they just wait on you to enter the U.S. There's no one knows anything until I, I don't know if you for those who would enter the US you're familiar with when you go to the passport counter right now you, you're probably scanning but anyway there's a light that goes off and someone just asks you can you follow mm. me that's when you know that Don't something you've is done with that <laughs> and, and it's tied to your passport so uh, yeah yeah so we just we just need to be cautious and, and pay attention to that gentlemen thank you for your time and thank you for sharing you your expertise and uh, for those who would want to find you, if you want to find me, I'm hug.tax. And how would someone find you? If you just go to um, Abbott Morley, I'll put it in the chat, but if you go to abbottmorley.com.au mm -hmm. um, and you can book a, in a time or uh, have a chat with Tony or myself. Mm -hmm. abbottmorley.com.au. Hey, Darren, I think the next one we should do, we should do a session on estate planning and asset protection i think you know if you want to absolutely that sounds good that sounds great to me I think as, as grant loves that area he loves yeah we're all gonna die some stage so <laughs> Actually, I we, yeah. he had a look at, have a look at the thing last year i think everyone expecting to die last year but anyway it hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah. if you want to set up if you want to set it up set it up for the you know another webinar let us know and that way we can um that way we can do a session on it you know for about sounds great i'll shoot you guys an email thanks a lot Beauty. Uh, okay guys good evening everyone okay guys bye-bye bye. ciao bye here are four ways we can help you number one sign up for free webinars on u.s expat taxes and international entrepreneur taxes at www.htj Tax. Number two, stream premium educational videos at www.hcj.tax. Number three, contact us for tax optimization consult over Zoom. Number four, high net worth. We can quote for doing your U.S. international taxes returns. Our books and upcoming event are available at htj.tax. Please subscribe, like, share, and comment below. Email us at help at to engage us to advise on international tax or business matters.